Our second reading of God's holy word is taken from the book of Psalms, Psalm 112. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. His descendants will be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches will be in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Unto the upright there arises light in the darkness. He is gracious and full of compassion and righteous. A good man deals graciously and lends. He will guide his affairs with discretion. Surely he will never be shaken. The righteous will be in everlasting remembrance. He will not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is established. He will not be afraid until he sees his desire upon his enemies. He has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted with honor. The wicked will see it and be grieved. He will gnash his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked shall perish. This is the word of the Lord. In my personal spiritual devotions, which generally I try to keep separate from what I teach because uh, the minister needs to have a wellspring just as much as you do. And uh, that being said, I've been focusing on the book of Proverbs. I've been taking a chapter of Proverbs a week and, and really trying to meditate upon it and digest it and study it in the original Hebrew and look at it in the Septuagint and that sort of thing. And even though it's really, really uh, familiar territory, giving it this kind of treatment has really brought a a new wealth of of spiritual nourishment from it for me. The book of Proverbs has a verse that sums it up, and that verse is chapter 1 and verse 7, and there you read, "...the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge." but fools despise wisdom and instruction. In writing this, Solomon is giving us kind of a touch tone. The rest of the book is going to kind of sum that up. Uh, How can you have a knowledge, how can you really say you know anything, if you don't know where things came from and what they're for? I mean, really, that's, that's what Solomon is talking about. You may be a nuclear scientist, you may be a biochemist, you may be a great philosopher, but if you miss that God made everything, if you miss that God spoke it into being and therefore gave it a purpose... If you miss that God owns it all, and no human being actually owns it, it's God who spoke it into being, if, if that is not part of your thought process, how can you really say you know anything? You can build an electric factory, you can build an atomic bomb, but you don't have any idea what those things are for, what they're supposed to do, or the fact that they belong to God rather than you. So you can be an incredibly, incredibly educated idiot. 
The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And fools despise wisdom and understanding, which are part of knowledge. They, they despise those things, and in fact, uh, they have a moral content to it. Wisdom is being good at being good, and understanding is actually acknowledging that A equals A. It, it's knowing how things actually work and what they're for and that sort of thing. Like I said, it's very familiar territory. I've read that many, many times. I could have quoted it from memory, very easy. But the next week, I got into chapter 2. And chapter 2 begins this way. My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you, so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding, yes, If you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. So, as I said, you read Proverbs, you hit verse 1-7, and you meditate on a while, and you go, okay, that's a no-duh kind of proposition, But you get to chapter 2, and Solomon says, now, you need to wait up just a little. Uh, You need to receive my instructions, these proverbial instructions. You need to memorize them. You need to really meditate upon them. And that's really only the beginning of the process. When you begin to meditate on these proverbs, you're going to realize you don't know nothing. And that should spur you to cry out to find wisdom and insight You should really be hungry for it and look for it and search for it. And in the process of this, then you will understand the fear of the Lord, which suggests that those who have not taken this trip, even though they think they understand what the fear of the Lord is like, they really don't. It's it's dead knowledge to them, if anything. It is something that they kind of mentally could give a definition to, but they don't really know it. Not until they're really, really hungry for wisdom and seeking it. And, of course, the passage goes on, and why is it that you'll understand the fear of the Lord? Well, it turns out when you're looking for wisdom and really crying out for it and hunting it, you find out God is the source of it. There is no real wisdom other than what God has created, and he, in fact, is the embodiment of it. So when you find real wisdom, you find God. But for the purpose of this sermon, I'm stopping just short of that and really wanting to focus on the idea that, you know, we use the term fear of the Lord, but do we honestly know what we're talking about? Well, in, in meditating on that thought... Ultimately, a few weeks ago, it led me to Psalm 112. Because Psalm 112 actually is covering that same territory, and it functionally gives us a definition of what it means to fear the Lord in the second part of the first verse. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord who delights greatly in his commandments. That is a statement of definition. We begin to sing these spiritually uh, enlightened words that the Holy Spirit has given to us, and one of the first things we turn to is 
We're talking to God about the man who fears the Lord, and in our worship we define it. The concept of fearing the Lord is, again, covenantal language, ruler language. Uh, You fear the king, and the king is a covenantal office. Uh, God claims kingship. God is, in Scripture, from first book to last book, the claimant for true king. He is king of the earth, king of all men, king of his people, in a very special and unique way by covenant. And when people spoke of their ruler, they spoke of fearing the king. Well, to fear the Lord is ruler language, but the psalmist now defines the person who's doing that as someone who delights in the king's law. A ruler on earth, whether good or bad, and actually on earth, if it's a human ruler, it's bad to one degree or another. Uh, But regardless, rulership has to do with law. The king sets the laws, and he protects people under the laws, and he establishes laws for people to live. Well, God is the true king. He has established the pattern of what a king means to be. He has given us divine law. And if you fear the Lord, which, which is the virtue we're working with, which is an extremely important thing, if you fear the Lord, you delight in the law of the Lord. Delight is a statement of joy and happiness. You, you read the dusty old book of Deuteronomy, which is a summary of the law, and it fills your heart with delight. You, you rejoice in what God has said is right and true and good, and this is the way men should live. You don't read it with an attitude of, this is a burden. You don't read it with an attitude of, how can I find the loophole here? You don't read it with an attitude of, how can I push the envelope? You read it with joy, saying, I have a king The king has established laws for the kingdom. I can read them because he's given them to me, and I rejoice in what I see. And not only that, I greatly delight in them. It's not just delight, which is surprising, because human flesh takes God's commandments and resents them, but it is a great delight. The man who fears the Lord is the man who greatly delights in the law of God. When he reads it, he says, this is good, this is righteous, uh, this fills my heart with joy. And so Psalm 112 is about answering our question. Uh, Who is the one who fears the Lord? But it's not primarily about our question. If you want to look for what it is primarily about, you have to go back to the first part of the first verse, and here uh, a number of scholars will tell you the part of the psalm that I'm about to read is very unimportant. It has been attached to the top of the psalm to designate a kind of psalm, quote-unquote. It doesn't really have anything to do with the content of the psalm. Uh, It's just kind of there functionally. That is absolutely wrong, in my opinion. 
The beginning of the psalm, the part of the first verse which begins it is, Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. A number of scholars say, it's just a a hallelujah psalm. Uh, A number of psalms start with hallelujah, that's praise the Lord in Hebrew. Uh, Don't think anything about it. Well, you should think something about it, because praise the Lord is a command, and even though by the time of Jesus Christ, praise the Lord, hallelujah, had kind of taken on a slightly different meaning where you said praise the Lord, but what you meant was Lord save me, when the psalmist wrote hallelujah here, he was giving a command and saying, praise the Lord. It is a moral imperative. God is worthy of praise, so you should praise him. And let me tell you why. Blessed is the man who greatly fears the Lord. So we have our definition, but we kind of have it incidentally. What the psalmist wants us to do is to think about the fact that the Lord blesses the man who fears him, blesses the man who greatly rejoices in his laws. Is it just natural that goodness in this world will be rewarded? If you take God out of the equation, he's no longer there, We are left to our own devices, which I realize couldn't happen because if you take God out of the equation, every atom flies apart. But just for hypothetical, if you take God out of the equation and he's no longer active, would goodness, righteousness, truthfulness, mercy, and compassion, would any of those things actually be rewarded in the world? No, we would be left to a moral nature that is more bestial than the beasts. Human beings are fallen. Animals aren't. Even when they kill each other in the wild, they're not morally evil. But you and I are. We are fallen people. And if God were not at work in the world, if you were compassionate, you would merely be a chump. If you loved someone, you would just be a tool. If you showed any kind of mercy, you would be weak. And what would rule would be claw and fang. What would be would be strength would make right. And it would be a totally dark and evil place. So the psalmist begins with, praise the Lord. Let me tell you why he's worthy of praise. The Lord greatly blesses him who fears the Lord, who delights in his commandments. So that's what our psalm is really about. It's a call to lift up God in praise and to realize how good he is, because without him, every light of goodness and virtue and truth disappears. So, brothers and sisters, let us praise the Lord, considering that he blesses those who fear him. Having uh, given us this reason and calling us to praise the Lord, so the psalmist is doing it, and he's being evangelistic. He's calling us to do it too. Uh, He moves on, 
and begins to work with the definition I gave, but it's in that context. God has blessed the man who fears the Lord. God constantly does that. But having established that this is all of God and he is worthy of praise, the, the, the singer still is going to think, okay, you know, you've been kind of pithy about who it is who fears the Lord. You've defined it as he who greatly uh, delights in his commandments. Is there more to him than that? Well, the psalmist is going to say yes, and he's going to give us further definitions of the man who fears the Lord. It's all kind of rooted in delighting in his law, but it's not just that. It's actually much deeper. This is a man of a certain character, and the psalmist is going to give us that character. And secondly, if we're going to praise God for how he blesses the man who fears the Lord, it's just naturally human to think, you know, what are those blessings? We say that God is good to him, God has blessed him, but I'd kind of like you to be a bit more specific. And so that's exactly what the psalm does. It takes those two things and explicates them to the end of the music. And in my sermon, I initially started and said, you know, I'm going to pull those things apart. I'm going to work with um, further definitions of the man who, who fears the Lord And then I'm going to turn around and I'm going to list the blessings. But I found out as I was moving through the psalm, I can't really do that. Because the the divine singer, the Holy Spirit, has literally wrapped these two things together. Because blessed is the man who fears the Lord doesn't just mean uh, he fears the Lord and it triggers God's blessing. The fact that the man fears the Lord is a blessing from God. Can a human being in their flesh decide, you know, I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps, and today I've decided I'm going to serve the Lord. I'm going to praise Him. I'm going to fear Him. The answer is no. And so the very characteristics of the man who fears the Lord are given to him by a gracious God. If you fear the Lord, you didn't do that, quote a former president. The Lord did that. The Lord has made you this. And so, really, the blessings of the Lord and the man who fears the Lord, uh, his character qualities are as much as anything else we're going to list. And so, here is the list of these two things of what God is doing, and you can't pull them apart. Uh, what more can we say about him who fears the Lord? Well, in the first part of the second verse... His children are going to be mighty on earth. His descendants will be mighty on earth. I wish that would say his descendants are going to be righteous. That'd be great. Oftentimes that happens. Sometimes it doesn't. You know, a Francis Schaeffer has a child like Frankie Schaeffer, and you have a giant in the faith who gives birth to a demon. You know, it happens. And... Uh, there's, no, there's no evidence that the Schaefers raised him badly. There's no evidence that there's any abuse. Uh, he just grew up to be a viper, and that, that can happen from time to time. But it says, the man who fears the Lord and greatly delights in his commandments, his children will be mighty on earth. And uh, that tends to happen. 
If you have children of, of righteous parents who have raised them in the Lord, they may turn around and may hate mom and dad, but rarely are they not actually blessed by the fact they grew up in a Christian home. Uh, it gives them gifts and graces, which they may turn to evil next, but they are much empowered for the fact that they grew up in a godly place. If you grew up in a godly place, I hope you deeply uh, are grateful. Um, I didn't, and I'm a little envious. Now, God has been incredibly, incredibly gracious to me. But if you're the child of godly parents who have raised you in the fear of the Lord, you should thank God daily. Most of these people are going to be followers in your footsteps, and they're going to fear the Lord because God uses means, and most of our covenant children, discipled rightly, are going to come out of our homes, and they're going to serve the Lord because they have faith in God. And the second part of the verse is, the generation of the upright will be blessed. Now again, if you look at the verse and and meditate on it a little bit, the verse is not promising you that every child that comes out of your Christian home, rightly raised, will be a believer. But the majority of them will, and when they go out into the world, what are your children going to do in the world? Well, they're going to bless the community of God. The generation of the righteous is not one particular generation in time. It is the body of righteous people on earth throughout all times and places. And the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments, he's launching children out into the world who are going to be a blessing to all the other saints, mostly. Um, it's the way God builds up his, his covenant community. It's the way he nourishes the community. If you are a parent walking in the Lord today and raising your children in the Lord, you are preparing saints for the next generation who will bless God and will bless the people of God. You are right now creating tomorrow. And by God's grace, you're creating it well because God's disciples are being discipled. So the the man who fears the Lord, well, his children are going to be blessed and the entire church of Jesus Christ across the world is going to be blessed. Wealth and riches will be in his house, starts verse 3. As you know, we are not a health, wealth, and prosperity church at all. The foundations for that movement are worm-eaten, and they are filled with the flesh. They're filled with human greed and human sensuality, and there is nothing about that movement we want to affirm in any way. But having said that, uh, there's a number of passages in Scripture which promise God will bless his children, and it'll be very tangible. Um. Oftentimes, the blessing of God is not tangible. Oftentimes, it's internal. But Psalm 91, or even this line of Psalm 112, it talks about riches being in their house. That's not going to happen every household. The majority of this psalm is talking in a broad term. But God is Father. 
God has children. Those who believe in him are the children of God. And even evil parents desire to give good gifts to their children. So uh, God, being a father, desires to do that. And so there is a certain normativeness that if you walk in the Lord's ways, the Lord will bless you. And oftentimes that is in this world tangibly. In the Reformation, the Reformed Church discovered something really amazing that it didn't go looking for. The, the Reformed Christians, the Puritans, they embraced God's ethics. They, they looked at the law of God and they said, you know, this is a, a pattern for how believers would walk. And they started walking that way and two things happened. The Protestant work ethic was discovered and the Industrial Revolution broke out from Reformed doctrine. You see, when you do things God's way, it's really very normative that blessings will follow. And so you had a, a people of God who really had really not focused on wealth, and suddenly they had a bunch of it, and they said, well, what are we going to do with it? We don't want to live sensually. We don't want to live sinful lives, which could be done with this. So what do we do? Well, we pour it back into the business, and more people get hired, and more people actually begin to make wealth, and the Industrial Revolution just rolled out of the Reformation. The man who fears the Lord, it will be kind of normative for God to bless him. Now, in the world's first study Bible, the Geneva Study Bible, there's a note that appears over and over again in the notes, uh, and it's, it's, it's an important corrective. It says... In all these kind of passages, to the degree that is good for him and will give glory to God. See, the, the Puritans in Geneva who were, were translating the Geneva Bible, uh, they, they were experiencing that paradox where God was giving them wealth and the Industrial Revolution was happening, but they were also experiencing that in other parts of the world, uh, believers were being put to death by being set on fire. And so you've got God kind of normatively blessing the believers, but he sometimes calls some believers to a, a terrible martyrdom. Uh, how do you put that together? Well, the answer is, you know, God works with individual people. When Jesus looks at Peter and says, now, Peter, I want you to understand, when you're older, they're going to lead you off to crucifixion. And Peter looks at John and says, well, if that's my future, what about him? And Jesus says, you know, I'm working with him, with him. And it doesn't have anything to do with you. Well, that's the truth, and that's how God works with every one of us. There's a, a normativeness of his blessing us. Doesn't mean that you might not experience poverty. It may not mean that you might not experience martyrdom. Uh, but if that happens, you can rest in absolute assurance. This is not random. God is taking you where you're going and it is for your good, and it is to the glorification of God the way you were designed to glorify Him. So let there be a mansion or let there be a cross. The believer rejoices in the fact he glorifies God, and because that is under both paths, both can be called riches. They really can. Because to glorify God is our primary purpose, right? So moving on, we hear that 
in the second part of verse 3, his righteousness endures forever. If you go to the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, also the writer of Hebrews, uh, takes this proposition to task. But he is, is looking at the world from being, quote, under the sun. He is looking at the world from the proposition of everything you can see, you can analyze, you can touch. And when he thinks about this idea, in chapter 2 and verse 17 through 21, he, read, he, he writes this. I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me, for all is vanity and grasping for the wind. Then I hated all my labor, which I had toiled under the sun, because I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will rule over all my labor in which I toiled and in which I have shown myself wise under the sun. This also is vanity. The eye of flesh... The, uh, the flesh without faith looks at the world and says, there is no guarantee that anything my hands do will be significant. I can build a great empire and have lots of riches and I can have done something significant and next generation that can all be swept away and I will be totally forgotten and my work will have no lasting value at all. That is what the eye of faith would perceive, uh, the eye of flesh would perceive. Solomon is not writing from the point of view of the eye of faith. The psalmist is. The psalmist knows that the man who fears the Lord is in the hand of God. And he knows that the promise of Scripture is that God created his elect, his, his believers to have specific good works that he has assigned to them for their life, and God has planned their life to be part of his purpose, and so he can in faith say his righteousness will endure forever. Now, righteousness is a quality. It is a being in right standing with God, and it's a statement of eternal security, really. The man who fears the Lord is righteous with God. He's in right standing with God, and so he's going to be forever. His righteousness endures forever. But in context, the psalmist is not only just talking about that, he's also talking about the work of a man's hands. Like in Psalm 90, where where Moses says, Lord, we've been subjected to futility, we've been been made to wander the desert for, for a generation, and we're all dying off. And your wrath has been that our life doesn't matter. Lord, forgive us and establish the work of our hands, quote-unquote. Human beings are made to be servants of God and to do things that glorify God. And when human beings are subjected to futility, when it feels like our labor doesn't do anything, well, we collapse psychologically. And right, we should because we are designed to serve God. Well, the psalmist celebrates the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his law. What he does in this world will have eternal significance. But again, remember, the psalm starts with, 
praise the Lord, how blessed is the man. His righteousness doesn't find its establishment from the strength of his hand, or the wisdom of his mind, or the goodness of his heart. It finds eternal worth because God has planned it in and has given it to him, and his righteousness will endure forever. Um, Moving into verse 4, we have one of the more interesting verses of the psalm. In the New King James, it says, Unto the upright there arises light in darkness. He is gracious and full of compassion and righteous. The Septuagint translates this, and you'll find this translation in the Revised Standard Version. Unto the righteous, the upright, there arises light in the darkness. God is gracious and full of compassion and righteous. So the Septuagint read that that verse, and the translator said, that can't be talking about a man, that has to be God. And you kind of have to tip your hat to him for thinking that way, because the Bible does ascribe all goodness to God. But in the Hebrew, it's fairly clear that the upright is plural, and a light singular rises for them, and the reference of he, which is not a statement of, the word God is not present in the Hebrew. Uh, It's talking about the man who fears the Lord. The man who fears the Lord is compassionate. He is... um, Uh, full of compassion, gracious and righteous. Um, He is those things. And the upright have a light that dawned for them because this man is among them. Now, the Septuagint translators aren't wrong. All goodness comes from God. And the man who fears the Lord is really only reflecting the goodness of God in his life. If you take God out, everything disappears. But God, by his grace, makes good men good. I mean, that's what he does. And the psalmist now pictures a man who belongs to God, and he feels alone. Have you ever been in that kind of environment? You go to work, and you're the only person who knows anything about God, and everybody else is an absolute pagan, and it looks like the entire world is pagan. Nobody thinks like you. Nobody does what you do. You're not meaning to be self-righteous, but God has changed you, and you feel alone. And then into your life comes a co-worker who believes in the Lord. He is the real deal. The two of you spot each other immediately because the Holy Spirit talks to the Holy Spirit, and suddenly you don't feel alone. Anybody been there? That's exactly what this verse is talking about. God gives the man who fears the Lord, to be a blessing to other men who fear the Lord. A light shines when like is near like because they are reflecting God to one another. In his uh, book about Christian community, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer points out that you can tell your fellow believer that you are a gift from God. You think you're a gift from God? Yeah, I do. Because no man can convert himself. Every conversion is from the hand of God. So if there is anyone in your life who is converted, uh, God did that. And he gave that person to you. 
And that puts a real different spin on our relationship. God could put you in Morocco, and you could be the only believer in your village, and you could be very alone. But if you have saints of God in your life, even if you find them very irritating, even if maybe they might not be the people you would have picked, they are literally gifts of God to you, and they are like lights in the darkness. Is that a blessing, or is that a quality of the man? The answer is yes. From the hand of God comes every blessing, and if you have people who, who love the Lord and they're in your life, thank God for them. The light you're living in comes from his hand. In verse 5, uh, the, the man who fears the Lord is both gracious and astute. A good man deals graciously and lends, so he, he gives loaning without interest to the poor, but also um, he will guide his affairs with discretion. So he is very generous, he helps the poor, and he's not taken advantage of, of, and he is careful with all he has and what he does. I don't know about you, but that is a a very, very hard tightrope to walk. If you go to the first uh, early Christian writing that's not in the Bible, it's called the Didache, and if you read it, the first part of it goes through the Sermon on the Mount and says basically, Jesus meant for you to live this way. He wasn't kidding. But in a lot of what they write, they put a few stops into it. They talk about, you know, give to everyone who asks you, but don't ask for it back. And then they say, you know, before you do that, you really want to find out who these people are and how they're going to use it. And uh, you can let your gift sweat in your hand. In other words, you can hold on to it for a while to make sure that you're not feeding this guy's booze problem. That was a problem 2,000 years ago. Um, Here, the psalmist says, the man blessed by God who fears the Lord, he's going to know how to do both of these things. That in itself is showing the hand of God. That kind of wisdom is not human. Um, The most significant thing, though, about this man is verse 7 through 8. He will not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is established. He will not be afraid until he sees his desire upon his enemies. When the psalmist wanted to give us a pithy definition of the man who fears the Lord, he pointed to God's law and said, do you find somebody who delights in this law, lives it out, that's the man who fears the Lord. But when you get to these verses, uh, his heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. Trust is a synonym for another word, which is extremely significant in Scripture. It's a synonym for faith. And so the psalmist shows us the man who fears the Lord is not just a keeper of God's law. Legalism may obey. You know, the legalist may do some moral things, but he grits his teeth and he doesn't really like it. He's doing it because God demands it. He's doing it because he's trying to earn God's favor. But legalism never delights. 
legalism never rejoices in the king. And so now the psalmist takes us to faith and says, now the man who fears the Lord, he's not the Pharisee. He is the man whose heart trusts the Lord. That's about as New Testament a statement as could ever be written, and it's in the Psalms. The real righteous man has faith in God. And evil tidings come. The psalm does not say he has no fear of evil tidings because they don't show up. In fact, in context, the man who fears the Lord will have evil tidings come, but because he trusts in the Lord, he will not be afraid of what he hears. And history is full of evil tidings that believers in God have had to live through, and it has been raucous. It has been uh, the labors of Hercules. But the people of God are still here. Think about everything that mankind, the devil, and his angels have thrown at the church of Jesus Christ in all history. It is an absolute miracle. It is the hand of God that we are assembled here today in the name of Jesus Christ Because if God had pulled back his hand from his church, it would be extinct long, long ago. But the man who fears the Lord, trusts in the Lord, his heart is steadfast, he is not going to be afraid, and he trusts God for very practical uh, acts. This evil tidings is evil men want to do evil things to me. But I will trust in the Lord and I will trust in him steadfastly, and my eye will see with satisfaction what happens to the man who wants to look on me with satisfaction and grind me into the dirt. Right? I mean, have I misread it? Or I mean, it's very practical. That's what the psalmist has said. Here you have the very heart of what it means to fear the Lord. You have faith in God, And faith gives you to delight in him, and faith gives you to rejoice in his commands. Faith gives you to trust in him. You fear him, not in a craven way, but in a delightful way. You rejoice in him, and he is your God. Now, as time is getting on, I need to bring it to a close, but you always have to ask in the Psalms, Where is the Lord Christ here? Because Christ said, every psalm is about me. Well, it's fairly easy to find him here. When you read this psalm and you hear what the man who fears the Lord is like, if you're honest, you begin to wince kind of a lot. Do I really delight in the law of the Lord? Well, sometimes, but uh, sometimes I kind of resent it. Is my heart steadfast in God? Do I have faith in him so that I am not moved at all? Am I honestly a light in the darkness for God's people so that they rejoice when I come in? Well, I'd like to think a lot of the time, but honestly, I mean, occasionally, you know how every person really lights up a room, right? There are people who light it up by coming into it, and there are people who light it up by leaving it. And occasionally, I'm the guy who lights it up by leaving it. I have great deficiencies when I read this psalm. But it's all in the singular, blessed is the man, 
And there has been one man who has walked among us that would never have to wince in reading the psalm. That man is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the man who lived out God's law in delight of it, who trusted in his Father absolutely, whose righteousness is worth more than the human race, and who substituted it for us. So Jesus shines because ultimately he is the only one who can sing this without a twinge. Only God is good.